Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. call the confession this morning is from Daniel 5, verse 27. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. These chilling words were part of the interpretation of the writing on the wall, the writing placed by that mysterious hand while King Belshazzar and his officials feasted, using the sacred vessels from God's temple. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. Tekel, as Daniel explained, meant you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. God's judgment had come upon King Belshazzar, and indeed he had come up empty. He pursued his own kingdom, his own greatness. He had, as Daniel the prophet stated, lifted himself up against the Lord. As a result, his kingdom was taken from him, and his life was ended that very night. As Christians, we are called to seek the building up of God's kingdom, not our own. We are called to pursue his righteousness and to flee from our sinful desires. So the question is, how are we doing? If we are to be weighed in the balances, would we also be found wanting? In this calling we have received, it is good for us to weigh ourselves frequently in the scale of God's word. It should be your habit, for example, to read through the Psalms, and as you meditate on each verse, ask yourself, can I say what this author is saying? Have I felt as David felt? Is my heart broken on account of sin as his was when he penned his Psalms? Is my soul full of true confidence in the hour of difficulty as his was? when he sang of God's praise, our power, and mercies. Or, let us examine ourselves in the light of the life of Christ. As you read through the Gospels, check yourself to see how far you are conformed to his likeness. Endeavor to discover whether you have the meekness, the humility, and the love which he constantly taught and displayed. Go then to the epistles. Have you ever cried as the apostle did, Oh, what wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Have you ever felt his self-abasement? Have you ever seemed to yourself the chief of sinners and less than the least of all the saints? Have you known anything of his devotion? Could you say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? If we read God's word in this manner as a test of our spiritual condition, then we will likely feel our emptiness. We will have good reason to cry out to God and say, Lord, I am falling short. I have come up empty. Give me true repentance and faith, as I have read in your word. Give me greater zeal. Inflame me with more fervent love. Grant me the grace of meekness. Make me more like Christ. Let me no longer be found wanting when weighed in the bounces of your holy word, but let the glory of the righteousness of your Son be found in me. God's word is the light that shines in our darkness and makes our sin clear. If you are willing and able, please deal with me as we confess our sins to God. Summer is always a change of pace. You never know when you're going to be on vacation or the travels you're going to do. And, uh, thank you again for the opportunity uh, to be here. 
Lucian and Martian were two wicked pagans and very skillful magicians. And they became converts to Christianity in the early church. And in an effort to make amends for their former errors, they thought they should become hermits. And they withdrew and lived that life for a while and subsisted on bread and water only. The longer they lived, though, and as they began to study God's word, they became more zealous in their faith and became preachers, zealous preachers for Christ. And God used them to make many converts to Christianity. It is during this time that the Roman persecution continued in its height and it was raging on. And so both Lucian and Martian were seized and carried before Sabinus, the governor of Bithynia. He asked them by what authority they took upon themselves to preach. And Lucian answered that the laws of charity and humanity obliged all men to endeavor the conversion of their neighbors and to do everything in their power to rescue them from the snares of the devil. Having heard this from Lucian, Martian replied, their conversion was led by the same grace which was given St. Paul, who from a zealous persecutor of the church became a preacher of the gospel. The proconsul, hearing this testimony, and finding that he could not prevail upon them to renounce their faith, condemned them to be burnt alive. The sentence which was carried out almost immediately. During that same time period, there was a young man by the name of Peter. He was a good young man, known for his good looks and his good thinking. His, he was a, a student athlete, I guess you could say. But he was beheaded for refusing to sacrifice to Venus. And in that process, he said, I am astonished that you should sacrifice to an infamous woman whose debaucheries even your own historians record and whose life consisted of such actions as your laws would punish. No, I shall offer the true God the acceptable uh, sacrifice of praises and prayers. Optimus, who was the proconsul of Asia, upon hearing this testimony, ordered Peter to be stretched upon the wheel by which all his bones were broken, and then he was sent to be beheaded. Always in threes are good things, so let's consider the life of Nicomachus, who, being brought before the proconsul as a Christian, was ordered to sacrifice to pagan idols. Nicomachus replied, I cannot pay that respect to devils, which is only due to the Almighty. This speech so enraged the proconsul that Nicomachus was put on the rack. After enduring the torments for a time, Nicomachus recanted. But scarcely had he given this proof of his frailty than he fell into the greatest of agonies, dropped to the ground, and died immediately. 
In the audience observing this was a young woman of 16 years by the name of Denisa. And as she looked and beheld this terrible judgment, she exclaimed, Oh, unhappy wretch, why would you buy a moment's ease at the expense of a miserable eternity? Optimus looked at her and called to her and asked Denisa if she was a Christian. And she affirmed that belief. And upon that testimony, Optimus ordered that she was to be beheaded and was taken immediately to have that order executed. These are true accounts of Christians from the early church in about the third century. And they are recorded in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. For many Christians throughout history, that, along with the Bible and a songbook, were three of the primary books that they would use for their readings of devotions and encouragement. But we must understand that this is just these accounts are not just an ancient tradition. What they all had in common was that they had a faith in Christ. And we see even today that those who have a public faith in Christ still experience similar conditions. Pew Research Center, which keeps track of these things, says that over 75% of the world's population lives in areas with severe religious restrictions and laws. According to Open Doors, which is an organization that serves those Christians who are being persecuted, it was started back in the 1950s by Brother Andrew, if you remember God's smuggler. Today they seek to encourage Christians who are being persecuted they say, they say that Christians in the, um, I'm sorry, this is the, this is the uh, United States Department of State, sorry, even our own government says, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments and surrounding neighbors simply because they have a belief in Jesus Christ. An open door records these statistics that 322 Christians are killed 214 church properties and buildings are destroyed, and 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians. Things like beatings, abductions, arrests, rapes, etc. Monthly. Every month of the year, 322 killed, 214 destroyed, 772 forms of persecution. This day, as we sit here, 10 Christians will be killed. Six to seven church properties will be destroyed. 20 forms of persecution will be carried out upon Christians around the world. I would hope that that conjures up some compassion and empathy in us. Because we are far removed from that. We don't, our persecution is that we can't have prayer in public schools. That my neighbor looked at me cross-eyed and won't let me put up my fence. 
But Christians are being killed. Properties are being destroyed. Objections, kidnap, rape, beatings are happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. These stories and information often make us feel uneasy. I mean, just consider the picture that our children have for coloring today. It says, Jeremiah the prophet. I assume, there's no direction on this, I assume Jeremiah is the guy in chains. Is that how we picture our missionary? Is that how we picture our community outreach pastor? Walking around in chains. The other guy has a spear. He looks like a soldier. There would have been a day in history, church history, that either of those pictures, either of those men would have been an appropriate person in the church. How many would agree to that today? That to be a true Christian, you could have a spear and in armor and fighting. To be a true Christian, you could be in chains and imprisoned. Is that our view? Of a Christian today? Is that our view of our missionary? Is that our view of our outreach pastor? Is that a view of our life? Is that what we use as a standard, an acceptable standard, for being a good Christian today? I would say there's a few reasons why that's probably not the picture that we have of Christians. I would argue, first and foremost, I think it's uh, it's a great testimony or it's tantamount to, to the impact that modern psychology and evolutionary thought has impacted even the church. Think of how we view life. You start out kind of simple and you evolve and you get things get better, things better, it gets more pleasant, survival of the fittest, and eventually we can retire. Nothing against retirement. We're okay with that, right, Joe? But isn't that kind of the mentality we have? As we get older, as we mature, life's going to get easier and we can have a life of leisure. It's that retirement, leisure mindset. In fact, we use Jeremiah's own words, right? Jeremiah 29, 11 is kind of the trendy verse for people. For I know the plans I have for you, the plans to prosper you, the plans to... Make you succeed. And we extract those nice little words. But when we look at Jeremiah 29, do we see the context? What did God say first? You will be in captivity 70 years and remember this thought. I care for you. I want to prosper you. I want to bless you. And I will bring you back to the land. We extract just the part about the blessing and the prosperity and say, God's going to do that for me now. Are we willing to go through the 70 years of struggle, the 70 years of exile, the 70 years of captivity? No, our life is getting better every day as we grow older. Things are getting easier. I'm maturing in Christ. He's blessing me more. But I think James would disagree with that. He reminds us that the older we get, the more mature we get, the greater are going to be the challenges. And we should count it all joy when we have trials 
and tribulations because it's by those that we have our faith increased. It's by those situations that we see our patience to be built and our perseverance to endure so that we will win the prize. And Peter reminds us that for the Christian, the attack of the enemy, that roaring lion, will be great. And he's seeking to devour us. We often also interpret, as you hear people talk about God's word and God's will and what he's doing in our lives, you hear about these open and closed doors, right? That's a lot of times how people view what they're, how, what they want God that wants, God wants them to do. Open door means move forward. Closed door means go another way. Now while Paul prayed for open doors, you saw him break down a lot of closed doors too. What if a closed door is God saying, well done, good and faithful servant? And what if an open door is Christ saying, depart from me, for I have not known you, even though you prophesied in my name and took did other things? Is that a possibility? That a closed door is, is intended to test my faith and to see if I'm going to persevere in the seed that's been planted. And an open door is, a te- is another test in that same manner. Am I going to take the easy road? Am I going to, get, am I going to allow the cares of this world, <coughs> my shallow faith, to be ripped out easily? Open and closed doors need to be interpreted carefully. And even look at how the church in general approaches ministry and missions today. How often do we employ worldly means and worldly practices to attract unbelievers to Christ? When what we are really doing is attracting them to their sinful practices, their entertainment, their way of thinking. What is it that they are being attracted to? Is it a holy, almighty, sovereign God? Is it to a Savior who bled and died to redeem us from our sinful nature? Paul clearly reminds us in 2 Corinthians that God has one method of attracting people to himself. And that is the testimony of his people. Not the interpretation of his word, but the proclamation of his word through the testimony of his people as we are the fragrance of Christ. And as the aroma of Christ is Spread about those whom God is calling, those who are being saved, will smell it and say, Oh, that is the most beautiful aroma I have ever smelled. And will pursue it. And those who are not being called, those who are not being saved, will smell that same aroma. 
And it has the most putrid aroma, smell, skunk, rotten, junk, and garbage I've ever had to, uh, to, 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 to smell. <coughs> Do we believe that? That's what God's word says. Do we believe that works? Do we believe that we are giving testimony of Christ as his fragrance? That we are representing Christ and not trying to be attractive? I think these are all good questions for us to think about as we consider our daily lives and we consider the church as a whole. And I think it's important for us to understand that we need to be aware of and prepare for the ongoing assaults of the enemy. They are promised. They are guaranteed. If anyone is going to love me, says Christ, they should expect to walk and have a life very similar to mine. In his short three-year ministry on earth, I don't think each day got better and he got a nice retirement package. It became worse. The, uh, The assaults of the enemy became harder and resulted in death. In fact, Paul reminds the Ephesians that it's not just about the temporal world, but there's a spiritual world out there. We talked about this when we talked about Elisha and his servant. There's a greater battle out there that we have to see through our eyes of faith beyond the moment. It's rulers, authorities, principalities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces against which we fight. Are we prepared for that? Are we aware that that's going on? Jeremiah provides us an example of how to understand and approach the difficulties of Christian living and the ensuing battles. In chapter 29, verses 7 through 13, he records a lament for us that is very insightful. But before we look at that in detail, we have to understand a little bit about Jeremiah. We're familiar with his name. We're familiar. He's probably known as the weeping prophet. We know that he did some crazy things in his life. If we go right back to the beginning of his book, we see that he was called by God. Right? He, was, he had a call on himself even before he was born. What does he say in, his, in the first chapter there? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is God speaking to him. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. He was called by God. He was, he was put in place for his particular ministry. And then... Chapters 1 through 19 record some of the various ministries that he did. One of his initial ones was to go into the land of the exiles and to encourage them, to remind them that God's still in control. He also, which we probably remember more, uh, had some weird things that he had to do. He did a lot of object lessons. He cursed a lot of people. 
He wrote a lot of laments. He had a very discouraging ministry. If we did an evaluation of his ministry, we would say it's probably not very successful. In fact, right in chapter 19, leading up to this lament, Jeremiah had gone to the temple, taken his pitcher, his pot that God told him to take, and he breaks it and uses it as an object lesson to proclaim to Judah that that's what, was, that's what God was going to do to them. He was going to break them and scatter them. And, of course, the priest that was on duty, uh, Pasher, he was the chief officer. I mean, he evaluates this and says, you, that, you can't do that. And he takes them and he beats them and puts them in stocks. And once Jeremiah is released from that condition, he stands up and faces posture, again proclaims destruction on Judah and, and proclaims a curse on Pasha. And then he sings this song. It may have been while he was in the stocks, it's been argued, it may be in the while he was in the stocks that he sings this song. It seems likely that that may have happened as well. But in our chronological record, it comes right after that, that account. And here is what Jeremiah sings. O oh Lord, you induced me and I was persuaded. Other places it says you deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me. A reproach and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more of his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. For I heard many mocking Fear on every side. Report, they say, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him, and we will take revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a mighty and awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for I have pleaded my cause before you. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered me, delivered the life of the poor from the hand of the evildoers. And then his song finishes with a refrain about never wanting to have been born. But I want to focus on that passage right there today. Is that a song that you would sing if you were in chains and stocks? Is that a song that we would sing if we had been beaten? I could probably sing the first part there, right? Woe is me, how terrible life is. But then to end in the refrain of how wonderful God is. And so as we look at this passage, the life, the life of a soldier 
give some guide to help us organize these principles here. Verse 7. First, we have to consider, is it enlistment or conscription? Did Jeremiah volunteer for the service? Or was he drafted? Oh, Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. This is that age-old discussion that we love to have, especially in school, because you've got sides. Is it free will or predestination? Right? And the kids just like, well, it's this and this. They just love to pull out their little examples and just go to, go to town on that one. Right? That's a great fire-up discussion. But if we understand, go back once again to Jeremiah 1. When was Jeremiah called? God reminds him, I called you when you were in your mother's womb. I appointed you to the position of a prophet. Similar language is used of Moses, of Isaiah, of David, of Paul, and of Christ. Before they were born, in their mother's womb, they were appointed for a specific office. Is that true of only those five or six people? Or is that true of God's people? Some argue, well, yes, God being sovereign and knew these things, right? He, he saw them happen. But as you read the language carefully, it's not just foreknowledge. It's appointment. It's God making a decision. You will do this. You will serve in this manner. You will serve in this office. Romans 8, another great passage that we love. We love, right? We were reading it earlier this morning. If you go later on, Romans 8, 28, right? We just love that verse. We know all things will work together for good to those who love God. Do we ever read verses 29 and 30? I mean, we even leave, we even leave off the end of 28. To those who, see, we like to say called according to his purpose. But if you look at it, there's an article there. The called. According to his purpose. All things will work together for the good to those who are the called ones. And how do we know if we're the called ones? He then foreknows them. He predestines them. For what? To become like Christ. To be, to be formed in the image of Christ. He then calls them. He justifies them and glorifies them. He covers the whole plan from A to Z. God's people are known by God because he chooses them and appoints them to be his people. And this is why Paul so much battled with this this flesh and this spirit. As we were reading, you could read that. He understood that a little bit in in the first part of Romans 8. I met a friend who's a, an acquaintance of R.C. Sproul. And he said he, he served as an elder in his church and did some early ministry things with him. He said there was one time they were in a group and one, one person in the group said, R.C., are, are, you, are you really saying that God chooses, he elects people? And my friend says, R.C. said, see that chair over there? 
It's as God grabbed you by the back of your shirt collar and said, sit down. That's Dr. Sproul's take on our calling and election. But it's a battle between the old man and the new man because the old man doesn't like that. The old man does not like to be told what to do. That battle between the flesh and the spirit, the spirit, the flesh is dead, yet we let it live. Jeremiah argued with God, right? Back after God says, I've a, I knew you, I, I appointed you, Jeremiah says, but I'm just a young guy. I really don't have a lot of experience. I don't really have a lot of training. How can I go do these things that you call me to do? And Paul as well battled with this. I know what I should do and I don't do it. And I know what I shouldn't do and I do it. This battle between the weak, dead flesh and the newness of the spirit. Even though the flesh is dead, the enemy uses its, its memory, uses it as a reminder of the good life before Christ. Remember that good life when we were ensnared by lying and deceit and disobedience? How fun it was to not be in the blessing and the spirit of Christ. How glorious it was. Why? Because we were in control, it seemed like. We got to make the decisions. We got to do whatever we pleased. Oh, man. Is that the heart of man, even from the very beginning? Remember Noah? What did God say as Noah and his family entered into the ark? Oh, I'm destroying man because every thought and intent of his heart is evil continually. And God saved Noah and his family. And as they came out of that ark a year later... And, and Noah offered the sacrifice. What did God say? I will set my bow in the sky so that I will never destroy mankind by a flood again, even though the thoughts and intents of his heart are evil continually. See, Noah still had an evil, deceitful heart. And immediately it caused him to go be drunk. It caused his son, son to make some bad decisions. And there we go. Doesn't matter if you're in the Garden Eden. Doesn't matter if you're just coming out of the ark. It doesn't matter if you are in Howell, Michigan. The heart is deceitful and wicked. And that's all we do with our heart. Until God intervenes and changes it. And that's what happened to Jeremiah. What's it say? You deceived me. You you allured me you enticed me and I came because you were stronger than I am because you prevailed over me God is sovereign and God does his work through his people whom he has appointed in his commentary on this passage, Matthew Henry says, The Lord who formed us knows for what particular services and purposes he intended us. Those who have messages to deliver from God must not fear the face of man. The Lord, by a sign, 
gave Jeremiah such a gift as was necessary. God's message should be delivered in his own words. Whatever worldly wise men or politicians may think, the safety of kingdoms is decided according to the purpose and word of God. Likewise, John Calvin says that Jeremiah is trying to express two things here. First, that he himself brought no fancies. He did not bring his wisdom to play here, nor did he invent anything that he had said. This was God's word. This was God's doing. He had been the instrument of God's spirit and delivered what he had received from hand to hand. This one thing. And then, Jeremiah is trying to help us understand that had he been given free choice, he would not have undertaken the prophetic office. For had he been drawn to it, as it were, constraint to obey God in this respect. Paul says the same thing. I would not, I would not choose this as my life. To stand up and proclaim destruction and violence. To to proclaim these things that God says. We, we We don't like to do that. But what courage and comfort this truth gives to our spirit. Our flesh does not want this, but the spirit thrives. This is the wind in the sail for the spirit. To recognize and acknowledge that God is the sovereign one and we are doing his appointed work. It's not a draft. And just like a soldier who's been either drafted or volunteered. Going AWOL is not much of an option. We must understand that God has called us and appointed us to do his work. And Jeremiah understood that. And once a soldier has been drafted, once a soldier has been told to report, then the training begins, right? We go to boot camp. I went to boot camp once, back in college when I was young and not so wise. That's okay. I thought I wanted to join the Army, so I thought ROTC. Of course, you got to understand, I'm, I'm always looking for the not-so-hard route, right? So ROTC seemed like a way to do it without all the hard work. And so I went to tw- uh, eight to ten-week ROTC basic training down in Fort Knox, Kentucky, right, where they have all the gold. I didn't see any gold tell you. I kept looking. They kept me so busy I didn't have time. And I arrived there. I drove all by myself, reported. It was night and it was raining. I walked in. I tracked in mud and the, the drill sergeant was not happy. They had just cleaned the barracks. So when I first, even before I officially showed up, I got a mop bucket and I had to clean the hallway. And it seemed like We always had to do things the hard way. For example, 
When we went to meals, we would, our barracks were on the second floor. We'd come down, and we at the bottom of the stairs. If you turned left, you went right down the stairs, and there was the mess hall to the left. We never did that. We came to the bottom of the stairway, turned right, turned another left, and ran around the whole building to get to the mess hall. And on the way, running around the whole building, there was this big rock. And every time we passed the big rock, we had to stop and do 20 push-ups. It would have been much simpler, I thought, and more efficient to turn left and go to the mess hall. But I could tell you, 20 push-ups every time you run by a rock builds some muscle. And they figured out food is a motivator. When I'm running for my food, oh, stop me by 20, and then I'm on my way to food again, right? And if they catch you not doing your 20, you're in trouble. Because our motto was rock steady, sir, rock steady. And we would get up at 5 a.m., we'd go out and do our physical training, our PT, we'd run our two-mile runs, we'd come back to the barracks, clean up, we'd go down for breakfast, run by the rock, do our push-ups, eat our breakfast, go to classes, come back, get ready for lunch, run by the rock, go eat lunch. Then we'd go out for afternoon exercises. We'd come back, we'd clean up, go for supper, run by the rock, do our push-ups, eat supper. And then spend the evening doing our study and our cleanup and our preparation for the next day and lights out at 11. That was our day. My mom became concerned. She felt like I was becoming anemic as she saw my pictures because I could not eat enough. I mean, you, you see me there. I could not eat enough to keep weight on. The drill sergeant every day would yell at us, would berate us, would antagonize us purposely, would ridicule us. But along the way, he instructed us in some things. Their goal was not my happiness. Their goal was to prepare me for leadership to develop some skills, and to pass the physical fitness tests. There were many days I felt like quitting, and along the way there were many days many did, many other cadets did quit. They were the ones that were primarily there for the scholarship. But the end goal was to become a commissioned officer prepared to lead soldiers in battle, real battles with real bullets, with people who really died. And so we're doing 20 push-ups in front of a rock, running an extra two miles, eating and doing all those things did not seem like unreasonable stuff in preparation for that duty. And I'm glad to say I passed the physical fitness test. I became an expert with grenades. I was a sharpshooter with a rifle. And I missed maxing my skills test by one stinking point, for which the drill sergeant never forgot, never failed to remind me that I had not maxed that test. One point! I forgot to ask permission to use a used first aid bandage. And I did not join the army. That was not the life for me. I made a choice, right? I had a choice. But in God's army, we're in. And, jo and Jeremiah recounts what happens when you get into his army. Verses, the end of 7 and verse 8. I have become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone knocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all the day. It's tough to be in the Lord's army. Boot camp trains us for these things. They tell us when we go into boot camp in the army, they want to break our spirit and remake it. 
to become a laughingstock of those around us, to receive mocking and ridicule. Is that any different than what our Lord received in his life? Should we expect anything less? And not just our Lord, but we see Job. We see the psalmist. We see Paul speaking in similar language about their lives. Here we have a little synopsis. I'm not going to turn to it, but if you go to Jeremiah 3, here's the Reader's Digest version in, in 20. In, in, in Lamentations chapter 3, you get the full unabridged novel of what it was like to be Jeremiah. The scorn, the ridicule, the, the hardship of life. And even there, near the end of his lament, he says, Great is thy faithfulness. He talks about the steadfast lust of God. He talks about the Lord being his portion. Those great familiar terms that we love to use in our lives as Christians. And they are worth using. Yet can we use them in the context of great ridicule? Have we used them in the context of being made fun of and being mocked and being abused? So often we are tempted to run away, to give up, to acquiesce, to change the message, right? Like the cadets who left the basic training because, all oh, they were just in for the scholarship. And a college education was not worth this. And so what do we do? We talk about speaking the truth in love, which is true. But I think we misunderstand what it means to do that because Jeremiah spoke it in love and what does he say he spoke? Whenever I speak, whenever I cry out, I shout violence and destruction. Would we interpret that as speaking the truth in love today? I don't think so. We would be called on the carpet. Pastor would come and say, just a second now. That's not the way you talk to your neighbor. We've got to be a little more kinder, a little more gentler. We have to have a thousand points of love. I'm sorry. We, we, right? we have to be a kinder, gentler people. We have to make the message accommodate, as it were, itching ears who will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Well, that's a great characteristic of what's going on around us today. It's the words of Paul to Timothy back in the first century as a warning against those who will apostatize in the last days. Do we really want to speak the truth and love in that fashion so that it will gain the attention of itching ears, so that it will appease people who are looking for a leisurely lifestyle? Are we looking just to accommodate people and make them happy, or are we trying to save them from eternal destruction? In considering this situation and expressing concern about it, an article, a blog in Christianity Today back in March 2008 said, somewhere in the darkest places of our hearts, we take joy in preachers who put us on a pedestal, who remind us 
who all the bad guys are, and who assure us that we're okay. We sing and read and preach about grace, but too often our talk about grace is simply another method of preserving our self-righteousness. The message of the gospel cannot be changed. We are either proclaiming it or we are not. So in preparation for that, those are tough orders. In preparation for that, we have to understand that the gospel is two-edged. It has a dual purpose in its proclamation as we've already talked about. It gives life to those who God is saving and it brings death to those he's not. The gospel message brings life to those who God is saving and it brings condemnation and death to those he is not. And that is our order. That is our commission. To go forward and speak the whole truth of God. We are his fragrance. We are his aroma. And we love bringing the life, right? That's a feel-good moment. I speak the, the love of Christ, and I speak the life of the Spirit, and it makes people, yay. It's hard to do the death thing. It's not pleasant. It's uncomfortable to have my testimony, to have the, to talk about, talk about the words of God that talk about eternal damnation, eternal destruction, about being sinful in our nature. Those are things which are difficult to endure. And in order to speak that message, it may require a little ridicule. It may require a little mocking. It may require that we are a laughing stock. Because that would be not much compared to having to tell someone, sorry, you're going to die. You're not going to have life. That's a, that's a hard, hard message. John Calvin says, the truth of the gospel proves the savor of death to many. Yet our labor is not on that account of no value before God. For we know that we offer to God an acceptable sacrifice. And though our labor be useless as to men, it is yet fruitful as to the glory of God. And while we are the odor of death unto death to those who are perishing, yet to God, even in this respect, our labor is acceptable. Once again, as we are in the army of God, is it about the people around us or is it about our commander-in-chief? He has given us a commission. He has given us an order. Our life is not about personal safety and security. It is about doing the work of our king. Our great commission is go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything that Christ taught. Those are our orders. And a little boot camp training will help us to understand the difficulty of that call. The clear order, this clear order, will bring the same derision and the same anguish that it brought to our Savior. 
as well as his prophets, his apostles, and his saints. I think that's a great place for us to kind of break to consider these things. If you'll have me, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with a bit of a more encouraging message as Jeremiah continues to talk about this situation he's in and how God is working in his life. But I think this introduction to Jeremiah's lament should cause us to evaluate our perspective of the Christian life. Are we doing what we do by our personal choice or is it because God has appointed us? Are we focused on self, safety, and security or on God's work and orders? Are we approaching it from a retirement, easy street mentality or are we prepared to be battle ready? Are we criticizing others or being ridiculed ourselves? Are the trials and struggles we face viewed as annoyances or as a crown? Are we seeking to save ourselves or to save others? Are we adjusting God's word to our situation or are we simply obeying it? Oh, I love the catechism, right? The catechism that we said today. <laughs> How appropriate. That we should, that we should what's it, what does it mean? What does it say? What is the coming to life of the new self? It is to wholehearted, it is wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a delight to do every kind good as God wants us to do. And then they define what kind good is. He talks about all the struggles in the Christian life. Next time we'll continue through his lament and see how God is helping him persevere. But in the meantime, maybe Sebastian's testimony will be an encouragement to you this week. Sebastian was a celebrated martyr. He was born in Narbonne, Gaul, southern France, and instructed in the principles of Christianity at Milan. Afterward, he became an officer of the emperor's guard at Rome. He remained a true Christian throughout his employment. There was idolatry, debauchery. He was not allured by the splendors of the court. He was unstained by evil examples and uncontaminated by the hopes of preferment. He refused to be a pagan in both his attitude and his life and the emperor ordered him to be taken to a field near the city, appropriately termed Campus Martius, and there to be shot to death with arrows. The sentence was executed immediately. So pious Christians approached the place where he had been killed so that they could give his body a proper burial. And as they approached him, they perceived that he was still living in spite of being shot through with arrows. Oh, they, they took him and cared for him and brought him back to life. He was fully restored. restored. And upon his restoration, what did Sebastian do? As soon as he was able to go out, he placed himself intentionally in the emperor's way as he was going to the temple and reprehended him for his various cruelties and unreasonable prejudices against Christianity. 
As soon as Diocletian had overcome his surprise, he ordered Sebastian to be seized and carried to a place near the palace and beaten to death. And so that the Christians would not use means to revive him again and bury him, he ordered that Sebastian be thrown into the local sewer. What would we do if we'd been killed and revived? Would we go back to the people who were perishing and tell them the truth? Or we would go find a place of respite and protect ourselves. May God's spirit of courage and wisdom guide us in our appointments. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are the Lord who mercifully receives the prayers of your people who call upon you. May you grant that they may know, that we may know and understand what things we ought to do. And also may we have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, as we close in the way. things of death and life this morning. Communion is both, but it's meant for life. But even when it's producing death, it is death that brings and leads to life. In Corinth, some of them were sick and dying because they were partaking of the Lord's table without discerning the body of Christ. The body is God's people. They were not loving their brothers and sisters. They were, uns- they were selfish, choosing their own blessing for themselves instead of the others. The scriptures tell us this brought about sickness and death. Furthermore, they were not discerning the Lord's body, Jesus' body, who died on the cross for them. They continued to sin and did not confess and repent of their sins. Continuing sin and not confessing it is living a lie regarding the need for Jesus to have even died. If we do not need, if he, if we do not need to repent of our sins, then Jesus died needlessly. But he did not die needlessly. We needed his death to cover our sins. We must admit this so that his blood covers and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. This is life. Welcome to Christ's table where there is death and life, death unto sin and life unto Christ. Christ's body, broken for us. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.